morning of July 5th, 1862, three sisters were walking down Socky Hall Street in Glasgow when they heard a horrible wailing sound. They chose not to investigate, but if they had, they may have discovered the true identity of one of Glasgow's most infamous murderers. Hi everyone, I'm Kat. And I'm Taylor. And welcome to episode 20. Holy crap, episode 20. Hey, <laughs> we made it to 20. Like, amazing. Um, of Square Mile. I always knew we would. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I'll go with that. <laughs> um, of Square Mile of Murder, which is the podcast that this is and you're listening to right now. Um, okay, now I'm having my doubts about how we made it to 20. I mean, yes. Uh, so that morning, um, uh, July 5th, 1862, 35 year old Jess McPherson was killed at 17 Sandyford place. Her killing is known as the second of Glasgow's square mile murders. And today we are going to tell you her story. Um, so Jess McPherson was a servant at Sandyford place, which was and kind of still is um a lavish townhouse in glasgow's thriving west end um, i mean those houses are so nice they are real nice way out of our price ranges <laughs> oh yeah um and and we'll be sure to put up um the like square mile murders map on the website um so you can see like where this case takes place in relation to the last one the madeline smith pierre langelier case someday we're gonna learn how to say his name but not today uh and um but you just gotta kind of say it and with confidence and try and sound sexy that's very that's all french i was gonna say that's very french (laughs) um but basically when we're talking about like glasgow's thriving west end we're talking about Saki Hall Street, which was the West End in the late 1800s and is now yeah, like now the city center. Yeah. So bear that in mind. Yeah. So in 1862, 17 Sandyford Place was owned by the Fleming family and three generations of the family lived in the house. John Fleming lived there with his son, also John Fleming. Not confusing whatsoever. Um, and his sister and his father, James Fleming. Um, and John Fleming was a well-respected accountant in, in Glasgow and sort of had built his business um, in the city. Right. So James Fleming is the eldest. Then you've got two generations of Johns. Yes. And, and a sister who I could not find her name. And also like... It's, is she a middle generation or a... I think she's so she's so it goes James Fleming, John Fleming Sr., his sister, and then right. John Jr. And he uh John Fleming was a widower. Uh okay. so I don't I don't know what happened there. Also the sister never gets mentioned again, so I could not find her name. Just some Victorian age sexism bullshit. Well, and like You'll see why it's kind of weird that she's never mentioned again. Like, if she lived in the house. I don't know 
I don't know where she is in all of this. So it's kind of strange, but. So uh, Jess McPherson had been a servant for the Fleming family on and off for several years. She had spent 18 months working in Manchester and had also spent some time outside of domestic service when she set up a shop with a friend. But she ultimately returned to Sandford Place to work for the Fleming family. She reportedly had two illegitimate children, one of which was stillborn. It is not known what happened to her second child, but the timeline of her absences from Sandyford Place may line up with the birth of these babies. Uh, By all accounts, Jess was well-liked and respected by both by members of the Fleming family and the other servants at Sandyford Place. Uh, She was known to be very capable and had a reputation for standing up for herself. Good on your last. Yeah. In one instance, Jess was on the receiving end of some unwanted attention from a police officer, and in response, she managed to pin him to the ground. Nice. Right? I just, like, I want to see, like, I wish I could have seen that happen, because I feel like that'd be so badass. Like, shut the fuck (gasps) up, pin to the ground. (laughs) Oh, my God, right. So, you know, obviously, the last couple of weeks has been all this debate about statues. Mm Mm-hmm. I saw a picture of, there's one, I think it's in, I want to say Copenhagen, might not be, it's in one of the Scandinavian capitals, and it is of a woman who, she basically beat up a Nazi with her handbag, and so this statue is her, like, stood, like, one foot in front of the other, like, poised about, like, with her handbag up behind her head, like, ready to, to, like whack him on the head with her handbag that sounds amazing and i'm like yeah all statues should be like that oh no every city should have one angry angry purse wielding lady (laughs) so james fleming the patriarch of the family um was commonly known around town and i love this as old fleming everyone just called him old fleming but, right, he had a different name to his son and grandson. So if anybody needed a nickname, it wasn't him. I know. It should have been Young Fleming. <laughs> yeah. But alas, it was Old mm. Fleming. Um, he was uh, originally from Aberdeenshire and worked as a handloom weaver. Um, and he managed to work his way up by starting his own manufacturing business and investing in a portfolio of properties. Um and though, you know, through his his work throughout his life, the family became a sort of fixture of Glasgow's high society, old Fleming was known as a, a rather rough man in the <laughs> descriptions of the time. Um, he spoke Doric, much to the embarrassment of his family. And um, Doric is a dialect of Scots spoken in the uh, northeast of Scotland, so... Aberdeen area. Um, I mean, they do talk weird up there. <laughs> yeah. So, like... Although, right, since with having lived in Glasgow, now all other Scots or Scottish accents sounds weird to me. Yeah. I know. And it's the Glaswegian that sounds normal. <laughs> Which is funny because it's one of the more unique patterns. Um unique let's go with unique (laughs) um but yeah so he spoke uh, as as most people 
in all the the reading I did for this episode, it's like he spoke the Doric, um, which uh, his family wasn't fond of. <laughs> it, it was not proper to speak the Doric. Um, so snob. <laughs> and Old Fleming also liked his alcohol. Uh, and know the Scottish trait. Yes, very much so. Um, but he had some more unsavory personality traits besides just liking a tipple and not perfectly speaking the Queen's English. Um, Old Fleming, who was either 87 or 78 in 1862, we don't know which exactly because at the trial he claimed to be both ages under oath. Go figure. Um, (laughs) As you do. Yes. Uh, so Old Fleming had a reputation for being, quote, overly friendly and overly tactile with female servants, which is one way of saying Old Fleming was a regular old sexual harasser and assaulter. Uh, in fact, we know this because he had uh, been brought before the members of his church, the United Presbyterian Church in Anderson, um, for his association we'll say with one of the family's previous maids janet dunsmore whom he had gotten pregnant um and during this sort of hearing before the church i couldn't really find a lot of details about what exactly happened but the church charged him with fornication and rebuked his behavior clearly it didn't do much to stop him but yeah because the church has so much authority when it comes to law enforcement yeah but that's what you get when you're a high society member in the 1860s you just get told Mm. off by the church what i think is interesting nothing to do with that but um so his church was in anderson Mm -hmm. so obviously that was part of like the the upper class west end Mm -hmm. That is the area where Peter Tobin uh, was living when he killed Angelica Clue. Yeah, that's in, right. Was it 2005? 2003, maybe? One of those. In the early, early. to mid-2000s. Yeah. Um, and by that point, so that's obviously nearly you know 140 years later, mm-hmm. it become like a really rough rundown working class area yeah back in victorian times it was where the posh people went to church well, exactly and i mean a huge part of that is because they built the m8 motorway right through anderson and basically Wait. destroyed most of the neighborhood uh jess mcpherson often complained about old fleming's advances towards her this included one time when he came into the servant quarters and got into bed with her He also apparently kept pestering Jess to marry him. Like, no, you're an old man, go away. He's really fucking old. Even even if he's 78, not 87. Like, she's 35. Yeah, he's more than twice her age and he's just an old drunk. Yeah, basically. So Jess McPherson was good friends with Jessie McLachlan, who was originally from Inverness. But she left Inverness at the age of 15 and went into service in Glasgow, where she worked for the Fleming family. So 
Jess and Jessie. Yeah. Worked together for the Flemings for a while before Jessie moved on to work in other households. But Jessie remained close with Jess and often visited her at Sandyford Place. This is going to get confusing. It really is. I tried really hard. <laughs> but it's, yeah. It's also confusing because in some of the like court transcripts, people refer to Jess as Jessie. And it's just like, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In 1862, Jessie was 28 years old and was married to a cargo shipmate named James. And they lived in the Broomy Law, which is an area of Glasgow on the bank of the River Clyde that housed the wharfs and was one of the heart of the city's shipping industry. Uh, because James was often out at sea, Jessie was often left alone with the couple's three-year-old son. Uh, James didn't make much money as a seaman and the couple had to supplement their income in other ways to stay afloat. They took in lodgers and Jessie regularly pawned possessions for cash to get them through the month. But despite monetary struggles, Jessie had a taste for the expensive. Who doesn't? Yeah. And often had an eye on luxurious clothes she definitely couldn't afford. Yeah. Again. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? <laughs> um... So John Fleming and his son, young Fleming, going to make it happen, um, often left Glasgow for uh, their holiday home in Danoon. Um, and on the weekend of July 4th, 1862, they set off for Danoon, leaving old Fleming in the house at Sandyford Place alone with Jess McPherson. Um at around 10 p.m. that night, Jessie McLaughlin made her way over to uh, Sandyford Place to meet up with Jess. This is going to get confusing. <laughs> um, Jessie, Jessie, on her way over to see Jess, brought rum and biscuits with her. Um, and during the course of catching up, uh, Old Fleming joined the two women in the basement kitchen in the house. Um, old Fleming offered the women whiskey and what followed was by all accounts, a full scale night of drinking. Uh, you know, why not? Yeah. Um, but that is something to keep in mind when we're sort of, uh, considering people's recollections of the night, uh, going forward. Everyone was drinking heavily. <laughs> So according to Jesse, while they were all drinking, she noticed a sort of tension between Jess and old Fleming. Uh, and though they displayed no outright hostility, it was clear that there was some sort of ill feelings between the two. Um, old Fleming ran out of whiskey. So that's how much they were drinking. They ran out of whiskey. <laughs> um, in Scotland. Yeah. In a, in a rich people's house. Yeah. And he loved his whiskey, so you know he had mm. enough. Um, so he sent Jesse out to North Street to buy some more. But when she got to the shop, they were out of whiskey, so she returned uh, to the house empty-handed. When she got back, she tried to let herself in, but found that the door was locked. So she had to knock for quite a while, and eventually Old Fleming came and opened the door. The two went back into the house and Jessie was surprised when she didn't see Jess anywhere. And as they got 
further into the house, Jessie heard groaning and found Jess in her basement bedroom, lying on the floor, seriously injured. Jessie's brow, no, Jessie's brow and nose had both been cut and were bleeding profusely. Jessie quickly went to her friend's side and tried to help, but Jess was badly hurt and most likely in shock already. Jessie told Old Fleming to get some water and she then washed Jessie's face, washing away the blood. Uh, This helped Jess to come to her senses a little bit and Jess asked to be moved from the floor to her bed. But Jessie wasn't able to move her friend alone, so she had Old Fleming help her. Uh, Jessie did her best to clean her friend up and in the process ended up getting blood all over her clothes. So she ended up taking off her shoes and stockings to wash them. And Jess started to feel a bit better and told Jessie that while she'd been out looking for whiskey, Old Fleming had made advances towards her and when she rebuffed him, he'd attacked. Lovely. Um, And men just delightful. Yep. So, uh, Old Fleming refused to let Jesse call a doctor. Um, He didn't want to have to explain what had happened um, and what he had done to Jess. Uh, But Jesse wasn't put off. Um, She put her shoes back on and tried to leave the house to find a doctor to find help for her friend. Uh, But on her way out of the house, she heard screaming and quickly returned to the basement. When she entered Jess's room, she found old Fleming standing over Jess with a cleaver. He had violently attacked Jess again, and this time he had killed her in the process. Um, after seeing this gruesome scene, Jesse ran from the basement and once again tried to leave the house. She begged Fleming to let her leave, but he stopped her. He told her that she couldn't leave now because she had been a part of a murder. And if she left now, they'd both be held responsible. I mean, dude. Yeah. So old Fleming then bribed Jesse to tell police that the murder had been committed by a stranger. He gave her one pound and seven shillings, some silver from the house's collection and some of Jess McPherson's good clothes. Uh, And he wanted the murder to look like a robbery that had resulted in a murder by accident. Um, He also made Jesse swear on the Bible that she wouldn't tell anybody about what she had seen in the house that night and warned her that if she did tell anybody, she would be considered as guilty as he was, which, of course, is not true. But um, she certainly could have believed him, probably not being up to date on the law. Yeah, if if her, you know, at the age of 15, she'd gone into, like, domestic service, it's fair to assume she she would have been from, like, a, a lower or working class. Yeah. So, and when this old rich guy is telling you, yeah, you'll be in trouble, like, surely, you know, yeah, yeah, you're not gonna know better, are you? Yeah, um, so Jesse took the things that old Fleming had given her and left him alone in the house. So, old Fleming then spent the weekend alone in Sandiford Place with Jess McPherson's body in the basement delightful yeah he didn't try and get help he just 
left her there and went about his weekend. Now, normally nobody in the Fleming family would answer the door themselves because that was Jess's job because she was a servant girl. Yep. But at one point on Saturday morning, the milk boy called at the door and old Fleming answered. He also spent some time over the weekend clearing up the house, including trying to clean up the large amount of large amounts of blood that were all over. But he didn't manage to clean it all up. And why would he if you've always had like a servant <laughs> yes, to clean everything up? He's clearly you. not good at that. Suddenly you have no idea how to, A, you don't know how to clean and you definitely don't know how to get rid of blood stains. No. He burned the shirt he had been wearing on the Friday night. On Saturday, another servant who sometimes helped Jess with scrubbing the house showed up at Sandyford Place, as well as one of Jess's friends who called twice over the weekend. Old Fleming turned them away, never once explaining Jess's absence. And he also attended church twice on that Sunday. Maybe he was well, trying he has to. A lot to be, he has a lot to be uh, to repent for. Exactly, so. trying to absolve some some guilt, perhaps. I think you need to go more than twice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, John Fleming and his son returned from Danoon on Monday and went straight to work. After work, they returned home and were shocked to find old Fleming answering the door instead of Jess. The old man told them she had cut or gone away and that he hadn't seen her since Friday. He said he didn't know where she was and mentioned that her bedroom door was locked. John Fleming Sr., or Big John, (laughs) as Taylor's trying to make a thing, found a spare key and opened the door. And there they found Jess McPherson's body on her bloody bedroom floor. Big John told Old Fleming to call the police, which the old man then did. So, when the police arrived, Old Fleming denied all knowledge of the attack. Uh, But he he did say that he had heard some strange noises on Friday night. Um, He explained this away by pointing out the large area of, quote, waste ground behind Sandyford Place that was frequented by drunks and sex workers. And he told police that he had chalked the noises up to the usual goings on at the waste ground. Um, He said that he had heard the noises, sat up in bed and checked the time on his watch but had decided not to investigate any further. Um, of course. I mean, I kind of understand that. When, because I lived in the East End of Glasgow, we had sirens, because we were near the Royal Infirmary, yeah. and we had sirens going past every five minutes. So after a while... You just kind of tune it out. Kind, yeah, you, you get used to it. You're not in like a, a hyper-aware state. It's like... Oh, siren. Yeah, so he didn't investigate the strange noises. Um, which, like, in any other circumstance, not strange when he's just committed a murder. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit strange. Um, so the police search turned up blood in the kitchen and the lobby of the house. I think it's the lobby of the house. It just said lobby. I mean, you'd assume that would just be like the entry hall. Yeah. Um, and uh, they also found some of Old Fleming's shirts, which he kept in um, a room in the basement 
because he liked to hang out with the servants because he was so, quote, rough that he didn't like to, <laughs> the rest of his family didn't like to hang out with him. I don't blame them. Um, yeah. <laughs> so a couple of his shirts had spots of blood on them. Um, and the police also noted that some of the family's silver plated spoons and forks were missing and that some of Jess's dresses were missing. Um, so the police placed newspaper ads about the missing items in an attempt to find them. And soon a pawnbroker alerted police that he had some of the pieces of missing silver in his shop and that they had been pawned by a woman named Mary McDonald. Uh, the police followed up this lead and found out quickly that Mary McDonald was in fact, Jesse McLaughlin. Jesse had returned to her lodgings in the Broomielaw at 9am Saturday morning. This is, so this is Saturday morning following the murder. Yeah. Uh, she was let into the house by one of her lodgers, Mrs. Campbell. Uh, she realised she needed to get rid of the bloodstained clothing that she'd been wearing that night, as well as the clothing she'd taken from Jessie's room. And her solution was to send a trunk containing her bloodstained clothes to Hamilton under the name of a person who didn't exist, thinking that it would just never be collected. So she sent a similar trunk full of Jesse's clothing to air. Uh, these were, of course, later found by police. How many items of clothing yeah. did she take if there was, like, two trunks worth? Like, a couple dresses, I think. But, um, just, but you know, dresses had, you know, lots of layers. True. And they were... Big, but you'd so also look a bit weird kind of carrying all that figured. through Glasgow at nine o'clock in the morning. You would think, right? I don't know how she carried it. <laughs> she also asked her husband, James, to dispose of some of the things from Sandyford Place. But this concerned James McLaughlin and he went to the police to tell them what had been going on. And all these actions focused further scrutiny on Jesse. During the post-mortem post exam, doctors noted that Jess McPherson had 40 hack wounds on her head, face and neck. Her forehead, her forehead bone had been split. So I assume that means her skull had been split. Yes, it said forehead bone specifically. A skull would have been an easier yeah. way to say that. Uh, and she had numerous defensive wounds on her wrists. Doctors determined that Jesse's wounds had been inflicted by someone who wasn't very strong, uh, most likely a woman or an older, weak man. Hmm, we know both of those. Hmm. If only she hadn't been in the company of one of each of those. Yeah, exactly. Uh, three days after the murder, old Fleming was arrested and taken in for further questioning. Uh, he tried. He continued to deny having anything to do with the murder. His story was that he had gone to bed on Friday, hadn't seen Jesse McLaughlin at all that night, and had woken up the next morning to find that Jesse McPherson was gone. Meanwhile, the police continued to investigate Jesse McLaughlin. They started to look for reasons she might have had to steal from her friend, and the police settled on the McLaughlin's money struggles as an adequate motive for the crime. Uh, they found several tickets for pawned items in her home and began to build their entire case around the idea that the murder had occurred while Jesse was trying to rob Jess. I mean, I can understand where they're coming from with that. 
rich people were automatically thought of as being better or having a better character than poor people. But like also it wasn't super uncommon for people to have to pawn stuff in this time, especially if they were, you know, working class or, or lower class just to be able to get through the month. Yeah, I mean, um, that's still a common thing now. Yeah. And so like, yes, I think they found like 42 pawn tickets in, in their flat, um, which is like a lot. But, but had some of that still. stuff been bought back and then pawned again? Probably. It's not 42 like, different items. Yeah. So. It's not like she just brought up her, her 42 items mm. every month and then... So, but in any case, that's what they settled on. They decided that's enough of a motive for murder. Um, now, for Jessie's part, every interaction she had with the police didn't do much to help her case. Of course not. Um, she made several different statements to police over the course of the investigation, each of which contradicted the last. Uh, in one, she told police that Old Fleming had asked her to pawn the items to help him pay for a holiday. But police pointed out that Fleming had plenty of money in the bank and could afford any kind of holiday he wanted without pawning anything. Um, and pretty soon... Jesse's contradictory stories led police to believe that she was guilty. Uh, and like every time she would lie, the police already had the evidence to prove that she was lying. Yeah. So like she'd say, Oh, I, I've never seen those dresses. And they'd be like, you mean this dress <laughs> that is yours mm. literally. Um, so the, the thing was, Jesse wasn't just lying to save herself. Um, later statements indicate that she was trying to uphold the the deal, so-called deal that she made with Old Fleming to never tell anyone what had happened that night. And she thought that he was holding up his end of the bargain, too. Yeah. Don't trust rich people. <laughs> don't trust drunk old men who don't know their own age. Uh, but police weren't coming to their conclusions about Jesse on their own. Old Fleming was feeding them information. While Jesse was telling the police hundreds of different lies, Old Fleming was telling his own. And unfortunately for her, the police believed Fleming's lies. Uh, the final nail in Jesse's coffin was a tip to police, which most likely came from her lodger, Mrs. Campbell, saying that Jesse had been out all night on the night of the murder and had told people she was going to see Jess McPherson. And with that, police arrested Jesse and James McLaughlin on July 13th. Because James had been at sea on July 4th, police examined him and quickly let him go. His wife wasn't so lucky, and she was put in jail after spending four hours being examined by police. And this case is notable, not just for being one of Glasgow's square mile murders, but also because it was one of the first cases where forensic photography was used to solve a crime. Ooh. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, while examining the house, police had found the photograph, found and photographed a handful of bloody footprints in the basement. Uh, they determined at the scene the footprints had been made by a woman, but didn't belong to Jess McPherson. And with Jess McLaughlin in custody, police finally had someone to compare the prints to. Um, and also, apparently, there were some like 
bloodstains on the floor that indicated that a woman's skirts had sort of brushed through the blood and carried mm -hmm. it through the house, which is like quite, quite a clever thing to notice. I feel like, yeah, especially for the time and like, yeah, exactly. Um, so Dr. George McLeod visited Jesse in jail and asked her to participate in an early forensic experiment. Um, he had brought with him a few planks of wood, some wax cloth, and a small container of animal blood. Uh, he spread the blood on the wax cloth and had Jesse first step in the blood and then step onto the planks of wood. Um, and then he compared these footprints to the photographs of uh, footprints from Sandyford Place. Uh, and he told the procurator fiscal that they matched quote, with a degree of accuracy, which was quite marvelous. Um, and while this might seem pretty, like, non-scientific by today's standards. What, you mean that uh, footprint comparison <laughs> Looking at a is picture. kind of considered junk science now? Now it is, yeah. But, like, consider the fact that photography as we know it had only been invented in 1826, and by 1862 it was only really just starting to catch on so at the time this analysis would have been considered pretty cutting edge um and actually what's kind of cool is you can still see one of these bloody footprint planks um on display at glasgow's police museum which once once we're let out of uh lockdown I really need to go visit because apparently it's got a bunch of stuff about these square mile murders. Yeah, it's got a lot of uh, Bible John stuff as well, I think. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm told. I've not been either, so. Yeah. We'll have a reunion. So, <laughs> so the matching footprints were enough to convince authorities to release Old Fleming on July 17th, much to the joy of certain members of the local press. Because, of course, like so many of the cases we've covered recently, this case captured the public and the press's attention. A lot. Um, because most of Glasgow's murders happened as a result of fighting between like lower-class gangs, a murder involving the upper echelon of society, like the Fleming family, was huge news. Um, and, of course, the papers took sides. Never. Like it would never, that never happens today either. <laughs> um, some supported old Fleming and others supported Jesse, but mostly they supported themselves because newspaper sales during the case increased 500 times over their normal numbers. That's quite impressive. It's a lot. Apparently one editor was like, if only we could have a murder like this every month, then within a short period of time, I could retire to the south of France. Uh, the Glasgow Herald loudly and proudly supported old Fleming, dubbing, dubbing him the, quote, old innocent in their coverage. And when he was released, they ran a piece celebrating his freedom uh, and we'll include some photos of the Herald's coverage as well as links to an archive if you'd like to read more because it's kind of amazing what they could get away with saying back then which, of course, wouldn't fly today due to defamation laws. Yeah. So Jessie wasn't as pleased as the Herald to hear of Fleming's release. When she heard the news, she burst into tears and cried, quote, He's an old murderer. He did the deed. 
the guilty has got out and the innocent is kept in. If I had the money, I'd have got out as well as him. Yep, that's uh, true. Yeah, true. (laughs) And uh, she then called for her lawyer and gave him another statement about the murder. Uh, Despite protestations of her innocence, Jess's trial was set for the Glasgow Autumn Circuit. Uh, The trial probably should have been moved to Edinburgh, much like uh, Madeline Smith's had been, to avoid bias in the jury pool. And so three judges heard the case, but the trial remained in Glasgow. Yeah, but again, if she'd been rich, like Madeline Smith was, it would have been Exactly. She was... She was not. Um, Oddly enough, Jesse wasn't served with an indictment until August 30th, which is after the trial had been scheduled, which seems like not legal, but... Yeah, that's a very wrong way around. Yes. Um, Because of this, her legal team didn't have any real idea of who might be presented as witnesses against her, and they actually didn't even know the full nature of the crimes that she was being charged with. So they didn't really have a good idea of how to build a defense that's yeah doesn't sound right no um her team thought that there would be no way for the crown to prove that jesse had even been in the house the night of the murder um and everyone sort of had the idea that she would be quickly found innocent of the crime (sighs) Uh, (laughs) um Jesse's trial began on the morning of September 17th, 1862 at the old court in jail square, which is now called Jocelyn square and is actually where Glasgow's high court is today. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, the presiding judge was Lord Dees who was apparently so eager to sentence people to death. He was known as quote, Lord death in the court of session in Edinburgh. That, doesn't sound like a good and impartial judge no it does not does it (laughs) um so the crown's first witnesses were john fleming and his son little john (laughs) who testified about finding jess mcpherson's body um and then the crown called the next witness james fleming and this (laughs) this sent a shockwave of excitement through the packed court. Old Fleming gave his testimony in his Doric tongue, and all court records actually recorded this verbatim. His testimony is long, and Mr. Adam Gifford, who was one of the prosecuting attorneys, often had to fight to get a word in edgeways. Uh, Old Fleming told the court he had seen Jess McPherson in the house during the day on July 4th, He said he left her working away in the kitchen when he went up to bed. Uh, A loud squeal woke him at exactly 4am. Remember, he had checked his watch. That's not the first thing I do if I hear a noise and it wakes me up in the night. (laughs) I know, check what time it is. And also, apparently, uh, during the trial, uh, the attorney asked him, does your watch usually run on time? Does it keep time well? And he was like, of course it does. It keeps exact time. (laughs) So. But he wasn't too worried about the noise and went back to sleep. 
He said he was surprised when Jess didn't bring up his usual porridge by 8am on Saturday morning. He said he got out of bed around 9am and knocked on Jess's bedroom door, but got no response. During his testimony, Old Fleming said that on Sunday the milk boy came round to the house, but he didn't answer the door. Upon cross-examination, Mr Andrew Rutherford Clark, who was Jess McLaughlin's chief counsel, pressed Old Fleming about the milk. He got Fleming to admit that the milk boy had come on Saturday. Later in the trial, the milk boy testified that Old Fleming had opened the door to him at the usual time of 7.40am on Saturday morning, and the Old Fleming had been fully dressed. How, If he didn't answer the door, how would he know that the milk boy had been? Well, exactly. Uh, and in one of the, the questions, he was asked that. He was like, uh, the lawyer was like, well, you didn't answer the door, so you assumed it was the milkman? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I figured it was probably the milkman. So uh, a lot of the prosecutors sort of helping him with his testimony there. Mm. Um, and then came the most dramatic moment of the trial. Uh Clark asked old Fleming, quote, why did you not let Jesse open the door when the milk boy came? Fleming responded, no, this is in his dialect, so forgive what's about to come out of my mouth, but I'm going to do my best. <laughs> I am looking forward to this. <laughs> Jess, you can. It was all over with Jess afore that. On Saturday morning, you can. Jess was deed. She couldn't open the door when she was deed. And um, in the, well, a lot of Scots dialect, Ken means no. Yeah. So you can yes, means so. you know. You know. So just, you know. She was deed. It was, she was deed. She was, she was dead by Saturday morning. Um, now, this, of course, sent a, a titter throughout the crowd. Mm -hmm. Um, and when Mr. Clark asked old Fleming if he knew Jess was dead when he opened the door to the milk boy, he loudly and quickly responded that he did not. So he, <laughs> he told everyone that he, kn he knew that she had already been dead on Saturday, but he didn't know it at the time. So he All did right. a pretty good job. So he, he, not he knew, he knew enough to know that he had to be up to meet the milk boy at, 20 to 8 on a morning but he didn't know enough to know that she was dead and that's yes, why she exactly to the door exactly okay so besides old fleming's testimony the prosecution's case rested largely on the mclaughlin's money troubles pointing to the you know the pawn tickets that were found in their home um the defense tried to bring in evidence of old fleming's previous sexual harassment and assault of Janet Dunsmore by questioning Mr. John McAllister, who had seen old Fleming on his way to church that Sunday. Clark asked Mr. McAllister if he had ever heard anything neg negative about old Fleming's character. McAllister replied that he hadn't before hearing about Fleming's involvement with the murder in the papers. And McAllister began to say that he had learned that old Fleming had been brought before the church for his previous behavior but lord lord dees stopped him from continuing and said quote now mr clark this need not be opened up just now with the witness and for some reason 
Mr. Clark didn't push the matter and sat back down. Wanker. Yeah. So the, the judge has like literally said, no, we do not need to talk about this. The witness yes. does not need to testify about this thing that we do definitely do not want him to testify about. Yes. Yeah. And actually the judge, um, when Fleming was being cross-examined, the judge just dismissed Fleming from the witness stand at one point. He was just like, I think that's enough. Mr. Fleming, you can go now. Uh, no. Yeah. So. So. Instead, the only mention the defense managed to get in about old Fleming's prior predatory behavior came in the form of testimony from Jess McPherson's friend, Mrs. Mary Smith. So Smith had met Jess out on Saki Hall Street on Sunday, 29th of June. At that time, Mrs. Smith and her husband noticed that Jess was looking ill, to which Jess responded, I don't feel very happy or comfortable with old Mr. Fleming. He's actually an old wretch and an old devil. She continued to say that she continued that she would call on Mrs. Smith another time because she couldn't say more in front of Mr. Smith. The morning the jury was to start deliberating, Lord Dees entered the courtroom carrying the black cap which judges wore when sentencing someone to death, in his hand and he placed it on the bench in front of him. Uh, Lord Death then addressed the jury. He started at 10.30am and didn't finish until 2.25pm. He talked for nearly four hours. Yeah. And like we talked about last week with Lizzie Borden, this address, to the jury heavily favoured one side's argument because who needs judges to be impartial right yeah it's, it's fine um, but unlike the Lizzie Borden case which sounded like part of the defence's argument this jury address was essentially a re-argument of the prosecution's case in fact many people thought that Lord D's address was a better presentation of the Crown's case than the prosecutors had been which is that always is good. not what you want in your judge. Not so much. The jury deliberated for 15 minutes. It's quite possible that they took a hint from Lord D's black cap because they brought back a unanimous verdict of guilty. Following the verdict, Jessie McLaughlin signalled to her lawyer and had a quick conversation with him. Lord Dees then asked whether Jessie had anything to say in her own defence against the verdict, and Mr Clark said, My lord, I understand that the prisoner desires to make a statement before the sentence is pronounced, either by her own lips or to be read by someone for her. Lord Dees agreed to this. Jessie threw back her veil and stood up in the dock and said, I desire to have it read, my lord. I am as innocent as my child, who is only three years of age at this date. She returned to her seat and Mr. Clark read out the statement that Jesse had given to him in the jail after finding out old Fleming had been released. Now, this statement laid out all of the events of July 4th. The drinking, the tension between Jess and old Fleming, finding Jess's body on the floor, taking her shoes off because they were covered in blood begging old Fleming to call a doctor, that scream from the other room, and old Fleming standing over Jess McPherson with the cleaver. 
Her statement laid out Fleming's bribes and how he swore her to secrecy. It included everything. And this is considered to be the most accurate account of the murder and the most truthful of all of Jesse's statements. Um, it took Mr. Clark 40 minutes to read Jesse's statement out in court. And as he did, everyone in the courtroom buzzed with excitement. The only one who didn't seem affected by the statement was Lord Dees. When Clark finished, Dees quickly proceeded to sentencing. He said that Jesse's statement proved that she had spent all night at Sandyford Place and that this actually solidified her guilt. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> yeah. Um, he said, quote, in the course of that night, at what precise time and what precise manner we do not know, probably when she was asleep, you did attack her with that cleaver we saw here or some other deadly instrument. You chose to put in a defense to the effect that a gentleman whose character up to this time had been quite unstained was the murderer. Uh, apart from all the sexual harassment and assault of all the uh... servants. Yeah. Except for that. Um, you have chosen to repeat that statement now with all the details to which we have just listened. There is not upon my mind a shadow of suspicion that the old gentleman had anything whatever to do with the murder. He also went on to say that her post-conviction statement was nothing more than, quote, wicked falsehoods and that someone convicted of murder will say anything to save themselves. Uh, Lord Dees then put on the black cap and ordered that Jesse McLaughlin be returned to prison and fed a diet of bread and water only until October 11th when she would be hanged. He ended with, and may God Almighty have mercy on your soul. In response, Jesse cried, Mercy, I, he'll have mercy, for I'm innocent. Mic drop. Yep. <laughs> and indeed, despite Lord Death's harsh words, many people agreed that though Jesse had clearly been part of covering up Jess McPherson's death, she was most likely innocent of her murder. Though public opinion had been divided, it started to swing in Jesse McPherson. Jessie McLaughlin's favour, and many believed she hadn't gotten a fair trial. After much public outcry, on September 30th, a private investigation into the case was launched. This led to the Home Office sending a letter to the Lord Provost of Glasgow ordering Jessie's execution to be stayed until November 1st. The Sheriff of Haddington opened an inquiry, which resulted in Jessie's sentence being commuted to life in prison. She was taken to Perth Prison and held there for 15 years. By all accounts, she was a model prisoner and continued to maintain her innocence. She was released from Perth Prison on October 5th, 1877. Uh, now, by then, Old Fleming was long since dead and buried in the churchyard in Anderston, which, uh, like we said before, was destroyed by the M8 motorway when construction started like 100 years later. Oh, so you mean so, his uh, restless soul may now just wander purgatory because for all eternity because he can't, he doesn't have a, a burial place. A final anymore. resting place. What a bummer. Mm, feel sorry for everyone else in that graveyard, but not him. Not him. Um, Lord Dees had also died shortly after the trial. Um, now, James McLaughlin, Jesse's husband, had emigrated to Australia soon after Jesse was sent to Perth. Um, 
And that's all I could find about him. Like, I don't know. He seemed to have just left their kid. Dude. Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. So Jesse was 44 years old when she was released and she met up with her son, um, who was by then 18. That's good. I'm glad that she got to meet up with us. Yeah. Son. To reunite with him. Um, uh, she initially went to Greenock, which is up the Clyde down from the Glasgow. Clyde. Down the Clyde. One way. Yeah, it's getting towards On the, the Clyde. Like it's down like part of Glasgow way towards Yeah. Towards the sea, so it's it's down yes. the Clyde. So she went to Greenock because she thought that she wouldn't be recognized there. But uh of course, soon enough she was exposed by a local paper. That, um I find that quite incredible that you know, this is what, 140, 150 years ago? Yeah. And that at that time, you could just move to the next town. and I know. And nobody would know you. It's amazing to think that she's like, oh, yeah, I'll just go to Greenock. Like, it's fine. Nobody will know me there. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so local paper, I think it was the Greenock Advertiser, exposed her and there was all this attention again. So shortly after that... Uh, Jesse McLaughlin escaped to America, much like Madeline Smith did. Um, she married again, and on New Year's Day, 1899, she died of a heart attack in Port Huron, Michigan. Um, 17 Sandyford Place and the surrounding buildings are mostly home to businesses now, although I think they're, the buildings are also split up into like fancy flats and residences above buildings on the lower floors yeah it's Um, it's definitely a mix all around there now yeah yeah um and the floor that held jess mcpherson's quarters is currently um an office and the tenants have been there since like 1975 i believe so public opinion has definitely shifted in the last 150 years and most scholars and historians now believe that jesse mclaughlin was innocent um, of everything but the cover-up, uh, and most believe that that statement that she gave in jail after Fleming's release is uh, the most true account of the crime. Um, and it's it's widely accepted that it was old Fleming, that old devil, who did the deed. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, me too. Um, you know, he had a history of being... A lecherous, you know, of sexual harassment, sexual assault against women who worked in the house. And so it's very believable. Yeah. And like you say, she, he was an upper class man. She was of the lower classes and, you know, good character, good social standing automatically, you know, connotes um, innocence in those days. And yeah, being lower or working class didn't you know meant quite the opposite so yeah exactly and like she like a lot of people throughout the years have said about jesse mclaughlin that she was a pathological liar because all of her statements were so like varied and they all contradicted each other but like she was trying to she was trying to save her own skin and she also thought that she had like made a deal with this old guy and that he was going to also help her yeah. out. And like, she shouldn't have thought that clearly, but 
like yeah. what are you gonna do yeah and that is the case of glasgow's second square male murder the murder of jess mcpherson and the trial of jesse mclaughlin uh thank you so much for listening and if you want to read more about the case check out the show notes or our website for links to resources we used for this episode yeah um and thanks for sticking around for 20 episodes what are you doing here (laughs) please please whatever you're doing here keep doing it yeah just come back (laughs) um yeah and uh and we'll have we'll have the next square mile murder at episode 30 which i believe is uh the human crocodile oh so this one's that one's pretty pretty yeah, cool so that is beginning of september that one yeah so, so you, you have to stay till september to find out what happens yeah. next you have to stick with us through summer yeah um uh so you can come visit our facebook and instagram pages to let us know what you think about this case how do you think it compares to the first square mile murder the the poisoning um let us know and if you ever want even more content, um, we post minisodes, uh, full-length bonus, bonus episodes. We are Elmer Fudd, apparently. Um, full-length bonus episodes, uh, videos, and more over on our Patreon page. Um, and every patron gets access to our regular episodes one day before they go public, so you can listen listen first so if you're itching to hear even more of us then you should go check that all out um we will see you next week yeah Yeah. see you then bye bye